0: Hi, I'm Steve Byerfield. Welcome to the Memoirs of Karate Fighter podcast. I'm here with author Ralph Robb, who wrote Memoirs of a Karate Fighter, and Donald Blaney, who was the original publisher of the book, following a publishing career going back 20 years, as well as being a member of the YMCA team. I've been training for nearly 50 years, starting with judo, age 10, and I'm an old boy of the Suzuki Schools of Karate at the Hombu, or Headquarters Dojo, at Manor Place Bars and Marvick House in London. Memoirs of a Karate Fighter is in my top five books of all time, and I can recommend it to anyone, whether they practice karate or not. Here's Kimberly Rivando-Rob with a synopsis.
1: Memoirs of a Karate Fighter by Ralph Robb. Swept along by the kung fu craze of the 1970s, as well as the threat of violence from his older cousins and racist thugs, the teenage Ralph Robb joins one of the most successful and toughest karate schools in Britain. Although he grows up in a comfortable and loving home in a middle-class area of Wolverhampton, England, Ralph strikes out for independence and moves to a flat in a high-rise tower block where a gang of National Front-supporting skinheads are in residence. In this coming-of-age tale, Ralph tells it how it was for a young black boy as he gradually matures into adulthood in a town where, back in the 1980s, casual racism and violence were all too common. Together with his cousin and best friend Clinton, he trains diligently and is selected to represent Britain at the Under-21 European Karate Championship. But as the jingoism grows to fever pitch in the throes of the Falklands War, Ralph finds himself conflicted. He wants to compete at an international level, but he does not want to wear the emblem of the Union Jack, which has become, for him, a symbol of intolerance. Ralph does win a silver medal, but his aspirations as an international competitor are curtailed when he has to take on work as a nightclub doorman to earn extra money so he can make a deposit for a home for him and his new family. But this is not his only concern. His training partner Clinton begins to exhibit behavior that will eventually require him to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act. After extremely rough justice is meted out to a notorious gang of football hooligans by members of the karate club following an unprovoked attack on one of Ralph's younger cousins, and the fights he's witnessed at the doors of the various nightclubs, he begins to question the direction in which his life is heading, as well as his own attitudes to violence. The more he is able to fight, the less inclined he is to do so, and Ralph decides to take another course one which will lead him to a higher qualifications as an engineer and a role in a management at a factory in which he had once served as an apprentice. Following several years as Britain's top team, the Karate Club begins its slide into decline and members start to fall away. But they do meet up for one last time at the funeral of Clinton following his suicide at the age of 23. The death of his lifelong friend brings about another period of introspection, which will lead Ralph to leave Karate and Wolverhampton behind for a new life in Canada with his wife and children.
0: Ralph, when did you finish competing?
2: Good question. It's hard to see the exact timeline on that because I was always drawn back to the odd competition, right. the odd tournament here and there. Uh, when I finally finished, I would say it would have to be around 88, 87,
3: 88, 89. Mm-hmm. Around just,
0: that. just before the Wado World Cup at Crystal Palace. Oh, yeah.
3: Yes. And yeah. Donald? Well, my last ever competition fight was about 1984. I uh, fought for the YMCA B team. I hasten to add. <laughs> uh, but I fought along. There was Leslie Fairclough in the team and Errol Eamons and these guys. And we reached the quarterfinal of the English Championships. Jerome had asked me, he said, look, yeah, I, I fought quite well that day. You know, what about putting a bit more work in and trying to find uh, your way back into the first team? And... Uh, Fate intervened. I was involved in a very serious road accident, and I destroyed all the soft tissue in my left shoulder. And it, they had told me I'd never move my arm properly again. I'm glad to say I defied that, and in 14 months I had the movement back. But to be quite honest, I was always semi detached. I was from when I started boxing in 1980. Then I did a year's keep boxing with the likes of um, Howard Brown, and I sparred with Steve Babs and these guys who were the top guys at the time. I didn't have a lot of heart for competition karate. Just as an aside, the thing about it is, I think one thing that summed it up where karate competition was going, we had an England international come and visit the YM and wanted to take part in the fighting lessons that we had on a Saturday. And um, he really didn't do too well because what he thought was fighting was actually competition karate. And yeah. uh, he kept pulling out as though he'd scored a point. And stuck it. <laughs> And he ended up getting knocked out. I mean, knocked unconscious, yeah. uh, not through any benevolence because he kept stopping. And uh, personally, he was sparring just flattened him with the combination. It wasn't this guy's fault. He he was only doing what he was trying to do. Yeah. You know, and he actually genuinely thought what he was doing was free fighting. Uh, and I remember the conversation after wondering what, what the heck was going on there, you know, because, uh, there's an old adage in boxing about defending yourself at all times. <laughs> you know, I, well that should be also. I, we very call dangerous. it action in karate. You know,
0: very Beware. dangerous to lose awareness.
3: Oh yeah, I, and this guy could. He wanted. I think he wanted to try and emphasise that he'd actually touched the person he was sparring. It kind of makes me laugh now because I, I do often think of that uh, particular moment because. I do watch the odd video of modern uh, competition karate where the guys seem to do a lot more effort pulling it back and jumping up and down and pulling a face. And I, I do often think, I thought, if these lads could be transported in time and carried on like that in, in our fighting lessons, it, it would have been a harsh lesson learned. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. As he pulled a soft leather glove over his hand and balled it into a fist. Four other cops exited from the rear and walked towards us. I sensed violence, and adrenaline immediately shot through my veins. I fixed my eyes on the sergeant who was leading the group. His eyes met mine, and his smile twisted in a contemptuous way, just as he started to veer in the direction of the three drunks. The cops surrounded the young men before they bundled them into the alleyway and out of sight. But still, I heard the smack of leather against flesh. I heard the dull thuds of booted feet striking bodies. I heard the screams of pain and terror echo along the high brick walls. Moments later, the bloodied men were dragged to the rear of the police van and pushed inside. The sergeant got in the front, and turning his face in my direction, he ran his tongue over his teeth, and the menacing look returned. I stood motionless, trying to figure out what the men could have done to deserve such treatment. Their reaction when refused admission to the club had been good-natured enough, and to me, it seemed their only crime was to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Don snarled as the van moved away. I suppose they might have made trouble elsewhere and the cops were looking for them, I said. You know, said Don, they wouldn't have done that to those blokes if they looked as though their daddy was a solicitor or a doctor or something. Does everyone have a political connotation with you? Yep, he laughed. So let's go and clear this gin joint of great unwashed and send them back to their hovels. On the way home, my mind was full of images of that evening. When the police had beaten the three men, Don had looked on impassively and had not displayed any notion of intervening. He knew nothing about them and that they shared the same skin color meant nothing to him. Yet I asked myself if they had been three young black guys, would I have simply stood by or would I have intervened because of the misplaced allegiance to a color of skin? Did the three men's white skin make what I witnessed anything less of an injustice? When the young white men at work had told me that they had also been subjected to police harassment, I did not disbelieve them. I simply thought that whatever they were exposed to did not come close to the treatment that black people endured at the hands of the police. But after witnessing the brutality meted out to these three young men, I began to wonder about how much of what I thought was a black experience, especially when encountering the police, was something to do with social status, with what the British call class. I thought back to that Sunday morning walk with Mr. Kovac and understood just a little more of what he had said to me.
0: How common was it to be involved in violence outside of the dojo?
2: In the book, right, this is a very touchy uh, conversation, which took a ton of soul searching and before I could actually put words down on paper. I didn't want it to seem as though the YMCA right, was glorifying themselves in, in thuggery or street fighting or that type of thing. But violence outside the club, right, did happen. For many reasons, it happened. It wasn't just the occasional football fans you might come across who was uh, being aggressive enough to defend yourself against. It wasn't just, also just the, the racist aspects which you would see on the street, which incidentally didn't affect us at the YM as much as you'd think it would. That would affect normal people who, going about their own business and such, but it didn't affect the YMCA as much as that. Violence did occur, but a lot of violence uh, which occurred, right, I like to call domestic violence, not the espousal type, which you might think, but it was a type which was caused by criminality within our own community, whether or not it was people stealing stuff from you, whether or not it was people stealing from a vulnerable member of your family, and which you would actually have to go out and try to remedy. Let me give you an example of all the resulting violence as such. When I was an early age in in Wolverhampton, somebody broke into my house and stole VCR, TV, regular stuff, small sum of money. Called the police. Police didn't turn up until about two, three days later, in which they only made rudimentary notes in their book. Now, I know a situation like that, which happened. The friends of mine in the community who actually did karate and the police didn't have the whereabouts to do what they're supposed to do at that time and they actually found out who had actually done the robbery. Now they went out and extracted justice in which they seen fit without having to involve the police because they knew to involve the police right, would not have gone the way they would have liked it to do. Now I'm pretty sure that you've uh, come across
3: some situations like this yourself with individuals at the MCA, Yeah, like Rob says, it's a difficult subject because when you're condensing many, many years into a book, there's lots of things left out and people can often misinterpret what's put in. And mm. they seem disproportionate. But there were several incidents and it was done with some reluctance because over the years, four people, four people I, I knew who were members of YMCA ended up in court over it. And certainly... Uh, Probably the heaviest prize paid was Leslie Fairclough, who should have been world champion. Uh, he was European champion at the time, and he was put out the squad because of a court appearance over an issue which had resulted in violence. So um, nobody did it. The people I know anyway, and I'm not trying to make everybody saintly. Well, I think Rob's right. It was often in response to criminality. I know people who had been attacked They'd gone to the police. They'd given the name of the person who'd attacked them. The police didn't do a thing. That person had a family member training at the YMCA so that this this person was found. It turned out he had a long history of violence, Uh, very few court appearances, because he'd intimidated people into not giving evidence. He did go to court over that attack, and he did plead guilty, thanks to YMCA members prevailing on him to do the right thing.
2: I know, I know. It's, it's very, it's very difficult to not to portray what I'm saying in a bad life. Even in a situation like that, you don't want to be appeared to be vigilantes as such. Mm. But the whole reason I started karate at the time was because of a threat to violence. Just by mm. walking down the street there was a threat to violence. So the fact that I did karate and the fact that I amongst groups of people who were probably started for the same reasons I did, there's going to be violent interaction at between one or several members of the uh, club against those in the community and then at, at the same time it didn't always boil down to criminality sometimes it was just a matter of the fact that we moved from the town center to a local community center several miles away was the fact that we're moving to somebody else's territory okay and you get this whole aspects of youth and gangs and this is my this is my plot who is were they thinking? coming from the deserted town to, to set up set on my street, you know? Right. That type of thing happened, Quite well, that type of thing involved or created uh, violent incidences. I'm pretty sure, uh, Don, you was involved with one of them as well, with Jerome, just by taking <coughs> being a club at the time when locals thought it was their
3: turf. Oh, yeah. Well, Jerome and I were uh, volunteers with the YMCA, uh, so we used to give uh, an evening of our time to... To help out and supervise and Jerome actually had to ask this gang of youth to leave due to their behaviour and uh, the following week they came back with this guy who was actually bigger than Jerome. Now Jerome's 6'5 and he was like 220, 230 pounds at the time and this guy was bigger than Jerome. I was just shutting up, I was doing the shop, Jerome was sweeping up and in come the gang with this big guy. So just as Jerome was finally finished sweeping up, the big guy drops a, an empty drinks can on the floor. Oh, John knew what this was all about. Oh, so John said, uh, "Pick that up, please." And your man says, "No." Well, I've never seen such a sweep in my life because John took this guy's two legs from underneath him. We call them the Grizzlies. I don't know what the real name were, but they, they were two brothers, and they kind of had a little posse. It and was a family name, up, actually. Huh? It was the family name. Where's oh it? yeah, because he he was so big, he went down with a a bang. But you know. That man came to train with us, the big oh, wow. lad came to train with us, and okay. he he wasn't bad. unfortunately, he ended up in long lot in high security prison uh, a little while later but he yeah uh, I saw him when he was released, and that's we taught him a, a lesson in life, a more gentlemanly courteous man you'd, you'd rarely meet yeah. yeah. And he also started to work with NACRO. So he had turned a, a bit of a corner. And Bob records in the book about these youths coming to me while I was trying to train on my own. And that, was a, that wasn't anything but these guys trying to stake a claim. They'd seen me supervise... They were testing the water, you know, and put it this way. They failed the test and I passed it. The good thing was, that a few years later, there was a, a bit of a fire breakout and a knife got brought out and I had to intervene and uh, it ended up one, one lad hitting the floor and he was absolutely furious. And he, he was basically saying to these um, to this group of kids, come on, let's rush him. But some of them were the people who'd come into the gym when I was training the, the couple of years previously. And they all mm-hmm. kind of stood back saying, oh, we're not going to get involved here. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. So that, that kind of saved me, you know, because if they yeah. rushed me, I think I would have been very badly hurt. So there was that sort of trouble outside. And, of course, I think, Steve, you may have come across this maybe in your time, but particularly in the 70s, people who trained in boxing or had been in the armed forces and had done unarmed combat training had seen what was presented as karate or martial arts and thought it was bakery they they didn't really believe it was right
0: yeah i just wanted to test you out
3: yeah test you
0: out we occasionally had people came to our dojo to have a go kind of thing within the rules of the dojo just to test out the fighters and some of these were experienced street fighters and you could see it did that ever happen at the ymca did anyone from other dojos or you know come to your dojo to test you out
2: Obviously, oh, there where guys, other critics turn up, right? Just to test themselves uh, with the YM yeah, because that's his reputation. That's what, that's and what just, I mean, yeah.
3: Such good fights. Oh, yeah, we had that and, all the
2: time. And they, were, and they, didn't, they didn't come there with a the belligerent idea of wanting to fight. They came there more with an the attitude they wanted to learn. If they came with the attitude they wanted to fight, they'd have been
3: seriously hurt. But to learn is something different. Yeah. There, there was the other occasion. I mean, we, we did have a few boxes come down. and but, they were, but then again, weren't they friends of people who were already at the club? Yeah, that's true. But they they also wanted to test it out because events yes. and some of them had boxed before. And but they had joined the crowded club or they joined in with the training. That's and right. we had also a few kickboxers come down to train and a few judo okay. guys. Uh, the the real challenges came outside. I mean, Eddie got challenged a couple of times on the building side, funny enough, they were all ex-military who'd done hand-to-hand and they'd watched maybe things like the Kung Fu series on the television or something <laughs> <laughs> and just thought, this is nonsense. Yeah. And, and so therefore, every, everybody doing karate was doing nonsense. And I was thinking back the other day, and I think probably I wasn't involved in a lot, uh, probably only eight fights in in six years. But uh, some of it did turn nasty. Uh, and uh, I, I didn't tell anybody I did karate because it was like some, for some fellas, it was a bed rag to a bull. They just wanted to, to uh, uh, fight you. I mean, uh, one guy found out that I'd passed my damn grade and um, just grabbed hold of me. I mean, not in a joking manner and really tried to hurt <laughs> me. Uh, <laughs> he thought he was going to prove to me or prove to everybody watching that uh, my black belt wasn't worth much or something, you know? Yeah. Rafte mentioned in his book. Eddie would sometimes say, uh, Oh, if you, you want to fight me, you know, fight my uh, fight my students. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happened was there was a, a big guy, being in the army, I can't remember what branch, but he made a beeline for Eddie when he heard that he was a black belt. And he kept inviting Eddie to punch him. So Eddie gave him a bit of a tap in the belly, That not much, because this guy was our supervisor, he was the foreman of the, the building site, for heaven's sake. But he went bang, you know, and the guy who's one of these guys, he says, oh, well, that wasn't bad. He says, I'll, I'll I'll, see you outside at the green at lunchtime, and we'll have a, a go. So Eddie laughs. I can wow. still remember him laughing. He says, oh, no, he says, you don't fight me. He says, get past my student first. <laughs> so uh, I, I took it as a joke. But before we went to lunchtime, he says, look, we'll do a bit of slow spy and warm you up. So I'm thinking, oh, okay. So I'm starting to think maybe this is a bit more serious. I'm only 19 years of age, by the way. I'm the apprentice. So we meet out. There's a green area, it's a place called Old Fallings Park Lane, and we're doing the, the house remods there. And people had obviously got to hear this. So, and it was it was during 1976 heat wave, and so we're all out on the green. And this guy takes off his shirt, etc. And I, I'm just kind of looking on. I'm still not quite certain what to make of this. So he starts trying punches. I think, oh, he's only punching slowly, so he he's not really serious. So, of course, I'm totally relaxed. So I'm pulling everything, you know. I, I sweep him a couple of times. I tap him around the face. And he, he literally drops to the floor exhausted. So, uh, of course, everybody's kind of laughing at this. and Go on. And um, Eddie says to me, you should have knocked him out. Eddie said, Eddie's, uh, I but he, he, wasn't, he wasn't trying. He's only punching slow. <laughs> and, uh, these two carpenters have to uh, be next to him. He says, what are you talking about, kid? He was trying to knock your head off because when wow. your reflexes are so fast, you think yes. everybody else is punching slowly. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, so, yeah, So anyway, I wish that was the end of the story because these two competitors then came to Nottingham to watch us compete at the uh, British SKA, Shotokan Karate International Championships, which we won. Yeah. And I, I'd had a, a fight on the team and um, I, I fought a dang I was on a green belt at the time and I, I dropped this, downgrade with a body punch and so they kept, kept calling me black belt killer to wind him up and of course they kept winding up the foreman you know it's lucky that that lad took it easy on you we saw him fight, and he was just and of course he, they just kept winding this guy up until he finally uh attacked me for real he, he just jumped from behind a bench and he actually made a serious assault on me luckily i managed to uh, escape but um as I said, it's just one of those things. You stop mentioning karate on building sites. But yeah. I, I have to say, Steve, Rob, he does mention in the book, actually, and I was just reading it the other day, about um, when he's in the nightclub at the Rising Star. And I suppose that was how YMCA members got involved in nightclub work because it was in a place called Bilston, and there'd been guys coming over from Birmingham, and they, they were kind of making threatening noises towards the uh, management, and they, they wanted to do the door. Uh, and uh, that's why Ewert and Jerome got involved. But um, Ralph just mentioned very briefly about how we always thought we were on the side of the right. And I have to mention a guy called Don Hamilton who mm-hmm. saved a, a man's life. He was working at a bail hostel and five lads had set upon this other lad with knives. And he, he walked in and um, he knocked out three guys with knives. I did ask Don later on what happened to the other two. He says, I went, so what happened to the first thing? just dropped the knives. He got this man, he quite badly stabbed. He got an ambulance there, uh, emergency operation saved the man's life. And the following day, Dan was called into the office and reprimanded because he hadn't followed the procedure. And I thought, you know, in any other case, he would be lauded as a hero who'd saved somebody's life, who'd taken on five-armed guys and saved a guy's life, and all he got was a reprimand. Wow. And uh, also, he did put into my mind about what, what we think when we're learning knife defense, what is actually knife defense. Uh, and Don was one of these guys who used to walk everywhere and he would sometimes turn up to the dojo with a sweat on because the number of times people had stopped cars to take hand on Don just because he had a black guy walking down the road. It was unbelievable. Yeah. So it, yeah. he, he, he he'd, he'd
2: actually <laughs> it, does sound, it does sound <laughs> unbelievable, right? <laughs> Sorry, Don. Yeah. It yeah. does sound unbelievable. I have a personal experience of that. Just, yeah, was, yeah just like about,
0: that. Yeah.
2: yeah. I was walking to the bus stop, me and Clinton, at that particular time uh, to catch a bus. Uh, I don't think we were going training because it was a little bit too late in the evening for that. He was probably going clubbing or something. And this guy out of nowhere just walked and just bumped, walked straight at me and bumped me. This guy pulled out. A bayonet, about three foot long bayonet, right? Wanted to stab it's A him. sword. A sword. Okay, so <laughs> me, I me and Clinton just turned and ran. There's no way I'm going to take on a guy who just pulled out a bayonet, right? With a bare hand. <laughs> Whilst running away, obviously in the book, I turn around, no Clinton. Look back, there's Clinton looking for bricks, stones to confront the guy, to try and fight the guy. I had to grab him, telling him Clinton, this is not. University. So either the guy's got mental problems or something, let's just go. So I have to pull him away from that situation. But it just goes to show there you are minding your own business, going to a bus stop. Next thing you know, there's a guy confronting you with a sword. Why?
0: Oh, it's a nightmare. It can happen. We we yeah, know I it know. can happen. We've seen it so many times. Stephen uh, Lawrence. Uh, I... Moving out of the flat would take a while longer, as it would require more funds than I had available and the only means of earning any extra, by honest means, was to take up an offer to work on the doors of a nightclub in the centre of town. Arches was situated in a basement in one of the town's back streets and was about as dingy a place as I could imagine. I reported for my first shifts to find the reception area was lined with familiar faces including Eddie Cox, Don Blaney, Trog, Don Hamilton, Ewart, and a couple of former members of the YMCA Karate Club. But Ewart left as I arrived. He had work to do at another club. I felt more than a twinge of regret as I watched him leave. Whatever his thoughts, he was a good man to have on your side in times of trouble, and I had arrived to hear that trouble would be arriving very soon in the shape of a gang of Hell's Angels. There had always been trouble at Archie's since the day it had reopened for business. The YMCA's involvement with the nightclub came about when the new owner had approached Eddie Cox for help because of what Jerome and Ewart had done for the rising star. And the new owner had been unable to find anybody who was willing to take their place for fear of violent repercussions. After Eddie Cox had asked Don Blaney to act as head doorman, it did not take long for the Italians to play their hand. One night, which was normally a quiet one in the club, they turned up, supposedly just for a drink, as did a steady trickle of more than 20 guys who did not look as though they were there for a sociable night out. Don was working with a man who, while decent enough in a minor scrape, was not a trained fighter. It was obvious to Don what was about to happen, mostly because of the staring matches he'd had with the men who ambled up the stairs on their way to the toilets. He could see his colleague was also aware of what was taking place and that he was getting more nervous by the minute. Don gambled by telling his fellow doorman that he would be of more use finding reinforcements while he would remain on the door alone. Don was by himself for what must have seemed an excruciating and dangerous hour, and when help did arrive, it was only in the form of one man, my cousin Hewitt. Hewitt had been there for only a matter of seconds before the rumble of a fracas came up the stairs. He ran down to the bar with Don to find the Italians pointing to three guys who were being restrained by his men after breaking up a fight. The whole thing was staged and an ambush was about to be sprung. The three guys, supposedly brawling, were hand-picked hard cases who were there to test the doormen supplied by the YMCA. Donna knew it, knew that they had to get the men away from the others, and with the other doorman they quickly took hold of them and rushed them upstairs and outside. The three men were out on the pavement, and the door was closed behind them before they could get set to throw any punches. The first punch thrown was a fist put through the glass in the door. Donna knew it, knew the noise of breaking glass would bring the others upstairs, and that they had to get outside and deal with the three hard cases or find themselves sandwiched between two hostile groups. The Italians and their cronies stormed up the stairs. Yet even though only seconds had elapsed, there was only time to see two of the hard cases stretched out on the damp road and Ewart with the third in a chokehold. When Don Blaney pointed out to my cousin that the man's tongue was now hanging from his mouth, Ewart let go and raised a foot above his head before he brought an axe kick down onto the man's face. "'Bones collapsed under the impact with a sickening crack, "'and the man went into convulsions "'and began to gurgle on his own blood. Ewart stopped and smiled into the face "'of one of the Italians who had lined the pavement. "'I'd get your mates to a hospital if I was you,' he said. "'They don't look too good.' "'This was just how you had taught karate in the dojo, "'stripped of pretense and the niceties of ritual. "'He had been clinical and ruthless,' and in throwing that final technique prevented further violence from the Italians who, after they had finished gulping, went away and never returned. As Europe reminded us when training, what takes place on the mat or in a ring is a contest. Real fights are different. There are no rules on the streets, except to be prepared to do anything to emerge victorious. It was an incident that also showed how much we had been caught up in the culture of Japanese Budo. It was a culture that had filtered down from the samurai, who had certainly showed no mercy to a wounded foe. According to the book, there was plenty of opportunity for nightclub door work for those who trained at the YMCA. Do you want to yeah. say something about that?
3: Yeah. I was wasn't the, suited for it. Ralph wasn't suited for
2: it. Yeah. We did take part in it took a couple of times. It was you had starting his own security company, which involved uh-huh. in a certain amount of door work. Now that's how I got involved in it in that side, by Helping you it out. Yeah. You yeah. soon yeah. learned, right, that it's 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 not for you. I assume that like it was not for me. It suited other people, yes, but to me, no. Nah. It came a point where you're seeing violence in its raw, natural, unnatural <laughs> state, right? which yes. unsanitized yeah. state I should say. And it was just not for me it was just too I've
0: done plenty of door work I know exactly sure. what you mean you you end up saying you're not getting paid enough for this exactly. oh yeah
2: and it, uh, not only uh, that uh, as well not on the fact that you, you're gonna, you, could, you you could get hurt but the fact that you might get you, yourself might hurt somebody over nonsense well yeah, exactly yes but the turning point in my limited door work research is one evening one night when they were closing up this guy he was obviously drunk He's only a kid He's only about 18, 19 sitting on a banister I spoke to him that he got to leave pretty soon because we're cleaning up now. We're got to get out. This kid took no notice of me. He was just sitting on the banister, dangling his legs, looking at me in the face. He was chewing the chewing gum loudly, okay? And for some non reason, right, it was annoying me. And then he blew a big chewing gum bubble and it burst. And for some reason, it set me off. I don't me why. I just grabbed this kid, right, I hauled his ass right in the most dignified manner to the front door and just threw him out. I was shaking like a leaf afterwards thinking, what the f- did I react that way? What it transcribed during in my day for me to take it out on this poor kid? And you know, this simple situation like that, taking that frustration, right, of whatever, for whatever during the day on that kid, ain't worth
3: it. Here's the thing. I was never suited to door because I was too polite. When I was refusing people at the door, i give them an excuse. And I suppose it was, a, in a way, a good thing because um, I didn't really hurt somebody quite badly. And to this day, I often think about it. And uh, luckily, I didn't. I hasten to add. Uh, but he was a big guy. He was coming in. He was 6'4", uh, big with it. And uh, I reacted badly at the time. And I struck him in a way that if I carried on with it he he would have been in serious trouble Uh, and rob mentions in the book is we'd often talked about it because i think that was the beginning at the end for me with dora because for 20 quid a night i could have been ended up doing god knows how many years in prison but i think the most salient lesson for me steve was they had a bikers night at arches and he's normally quite good bikers that has such a bad reputation he was actually the quietest night at the club except they all had to be searched and the number of knives and bayonets we took off these guys was unreal Every one seemed to carry a weapon and they'd always say it was to fix their bikes <laughs> what they with <took> <laughs> the knife I don't know but um, I'd actually thrown out this fairly big guy but after nearly hurting this fella I, I then started to go back to my old judo days and if it's only one I'd just grapple the guys and throw them out and once they were out the door I didn't care what they were shouting or screaming they were out and they could go home and I'd thrown this guy out and about six months later, I was in Sainsbury's. I'll never forget it. Buy the frozen food. And I was looking in to buy something. And I felt a tap on the shoulder. And I turned around. And there's this big guy, big beard, leather's on. And I said, sorry, mate, do I know you? He says, yeah. And I thought, oh. he says, you worked at Arches, didn't you? And I I, I started. I immediately had an adrenaline rush. I thought, whoa, here we go. Somebody's going to kick off here. And then he just took out his hand. He said, I've often thought about you. And I want to thank you. He says, one night I was acting a right fool. He didn't say fool, by the way. He said another word. And he says, you just chucked me out. And I, was, I thought the following day, you know what? If I'd taken the right kicking off you, uh, I could have been in trouble. And he says, all you did was throw me out. And he says, thanks very much, mate. He says, a lot of guys would have given me a bit of a smack over what I was doing. And I thought, well, maybe... Trying to be decent on the door was the thing that saved me because that guy could have put a knife in me.
0: Well, it's always the best way to do the door. I mean, yeah. I've, I've worked in some very notorious doors, you know. Yeah. I stopped working the door when I was involved in a gun incident, which I can't go into too much. Yeah. But that was a good wake-up call for me. You
3: know? Essentially, it was one of our former teammates that was talking to Ralph uh, about that, wasn't he, Ralph, when he got, was getting showered with the concrete? Oh,
2: yeah. That was, that was a guy who used to train with us and fought on a B team, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, he was a doorman in Wolverhampton one night and he had, he had to throw out this one kid for misbehaving. Threw him out. About half an hour later, it was a warm summer evening. He was standing at the front of the club, which he had thrown the guy out of. And he felt a bit of concrete fall on his shoulder. So he just brushed it off and thought nothing of it. A couple of seconds later, another bit of concrete fell on his head and he pushed it off, thinking, what the hell? Looked across the road. There was a kid who he thrown out earlier on, hiding behind a car, shooting at him. But this kid was such a bad pain with a gun, he's hitting the wall, the brick wall above him and to the side of him. Yeah. <laughs> I got to the guy that, <laughs> that was the last time my friend ever worked as a doorman. So that was it. That was it. Some drunken yeah. ass kid, right, might take his life for what? Nonsense.
1: Visit our website at www.ralphrob.com. Do you have questions or comments? Email us at ralph@ralphrob.com. At I'm Kimberly Rivando Rob, and I am signing up. Signing up. Signing up.